Hello and welcome to Poor Richard's Podcast, brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, home of the world's largest collection of diplomatic oral histories. Visit us at our website, adst.org. Happy listening. Women have been a fundamental part of the Foreign Service in both visible and invisible ways since its founding, making countless contributions. It is the stories of trailblazing women in the Foreign Service that pave the way for the future. Women have held formal positions as secretaries and eventually Foreign Service officers, but they also held informal positions as the wife of. Women were pivotal in their husbands' careers. They were reviewed jointly on their spouses' annual reviews, and they were directly seen as an extension of their spouses essential to promoting their husbands' careers. This invisible role for women was historically underappreciated. Some women, like the famous cookbook author Julia Child, refused to perform the role greatly, affecting her husband's promotion opportunities. Patient Spires worked towards building respect for dependent wives and their work in the Foreign Service. Women fulfill multitudes of roles in relationships and in the Foreign Service, whether that be a trailing spouse, a half of a tandem couple, or as the Foreign Service served themselves in the relationship. Here is Patience Spires, the wife of Ambassador Ronald Spires, talking about the role wives played in the 70s. David Bruce was ambassador then. And he was one of the great memories of, of because he was such a, a courtly, old-world gentleman and, and diplomat that it was a great pleasure to have him as the first ambassador. And Evangeline Bruce, too, was a model of, mm. <laughs> to emulate, I think. Very traditional in her expectations for the younger wives. Coffee meeting once a month to which we received formal invitations, written invitations, and we had to respond with formal written acceptances or regrets. And the regrets, uh, one had to have a very good reason for regretting. You were expected to attend and to wear a hat and gloves, morning coffee. So it was and it it was a pattern that I never saw copied in any other place of, of formality. I think she used that as a way of training younger wives and how to write formal notes and how to respond to invitations and things, and it was useful for that reason. I think, although many people objected to, to the requirements, I think it, it was a useful learning uh, device and... and and beneficial, even if slightly onerous at times. So. She often had a program of, of some distinguished playwright or an artist or a musician or someone who would give a talk, and, and then there would be um, coffee served later. It was a, it was a program, a cultural program, mm-hmm. and very, a lot of fun. I really I enjoyed it. I think so. In that wonderful mm-hmm. house in Regent's Park mm-hmm. in London. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a very interesting introduction. There was to the a foreign focus service on women's elegance, grace, and hosting ability, and a disregard for valuable leadership and communication skills. Women saw equal treatment in the Foreign Service in conjunction with the women's rights movement throughout the 50s and the 60s. Despite their education and background, they often faced discrimination and were treated like second-class citizens within the Foreign Service. There was a tradition of women resigning once married. 
There was not a written rule, but a clear expectation. Some ambassadors would object to women being posted to their embassies. If posted, female FSOs were sometimes expected to act as social secretaries to the ambassadors' wives. Only with persistent complaints and a few lawsuits that the system finally began to change in the early 1970s, largely due to the activism of one FSO, Alison Palmer, including lessening sexism on the Foreign Service exam to eliminating the ban on married female FSOs. In 2010, Palmer dropped the remaining lawsuit following the State Department modifying the hiring system. There is more information about the Palmer case on our website. Here's an account of one Foreign Service officer, Phyllis Oakley. She's an example of the women who experienced discrimination as a status quo. She offers a perspective that led some women to accept these policies and later talks about the effects of the lawsuit and the transitions that they sparked. After that ended, and Bob had, he didn't have an assignment when he finished the A100 course just before Christmas, but he was sent to Nice to study French. Oh, yes. <laughs> And at that point, then, he was sent to Khartoum, Sudan, as the GSO. By this time, we decided to get married. He was off there, you know, very complicated. I knew that I had to resign, and I think the most remarkable thing about that is my consciousness was so low. I mean, women knew that if they married, they were going to have to resign. There was not because of this peculiar situation where they didn't have slots. I mean, I think if someone had said, look, you're going to Paris or Damascus and we want you to be Arabic and whatnot, there would have been more of a choice, <laughs> but, or a, a more difficult choice. But when I then decided to get married and resign, and they said, oh, here's one person we don't have to place. <laughs> They said, well, now, do you want to get, you know, we can't pay your way out there. Do you want to be married? Oh, <laughs> proxy. There was a fellow named Dwight Dickinson, I don't know if you ever knew yeah, him, <clears throat> who was um, helping me with all of this. I said, no, thank you. I really didn't think I would do that. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, people... Uh, laughed, oh, we knew you'd get married, ho, 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 just like they said, you see, you shouldn't take women in the foreign service. But the times were totally different. Uh -huh. When women married, they generally didn't work. I mean, uh -huh. they would work if you were living in the States, but how could this work over there? Uh -huh. I never asked to see the rule. I never said, I object, uh -huh. give me a job when I get out there blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just the way you did well, things. Well, actually, it, it turned out that the it was more by custom than... Absolutely by custom. Uh, nobody thought to challenge it. Nobody... This is what I mean about consciousness yeah. being so low. It never occurred to me to challenge it. I was thrilled to be getting married, deeply in love. I felt, you know, this was it, that I was not giving up anything to marry Bob, that it was the beginning of a new life of adventure. And I'd had the feeling sometimes in college and graduate school is, you know, taking one more test or filling out one more application or trying to make plans, that it was, well, I'll just give up and get married. And that was what many people did, that, you know, as a woman, why should you keep fighting and pushing and doing all these things? Just give up and get married. 
and accept that. I had had that feeling when I had been discouraged and, you know, when I didn't hear from the Foreign Service and all these other things. But with Bob, I just felt that I was not doing that. It was just a, a shared life of a team going into the Foreign Service. We began to hear, of course, that the State Department was changing and the questions of women in the Foreign Service undergone revision and women were not required to resign anymore. And I went in to see the personnel office and I said, Mary, I think when I go back to Washington, I hear of all these changes, I hear now that women can reapply, that I'm gonna do this when I go back and we expect to be back in Washington in the summer of 74. And uh, she said, let me give you some advice, don't wait start it right now because it'll take so long yeah. and I'm here to help you do it. Yeah. So I went through all the paperwork and sent the letters and we got it in and you know the jobs and things like that and she was absolutely in June. Um, and Bob had to leave and go back earlier yeah. and I was you know pay pack and follow in the, the yeah. British tradition get the kids through school. Uh -huh. and, uh, get everything set. So we did that. And uh, I knew at that point that then sometime in the fall when the paperwork got rolling that I would come back into the Foreign Service. And at this point, our daughter was going into high school at National Cathedral School and our son would be going into junior high school. So that this was a time when I could do it. And it would simply be part of moving back to Washington yeah. that I would re-enter the job market. I never denigrate the role of women and wives in the Foreign Service going around with their husbands. I was wife of for 16 years in these posts, young children, you know, doing the dinners, trying to organize the house. It was a full-time job and we had some wonderful posts. You know, I worked where I could. What one learns and the people that you meet and what you absorb uh, in this process of living overseas and being part of the diplomatic effort and embassies and friends and whatnot. Stephanie Kinney played an instrumental role in the publication of the AAFSW, the Associates of American Foreign Service Wives, which was later changed to Worldwide Forum Report. The report included a questionnaire that highlighted the concerns of wives specifically. It then was submitted to Secretary of State. She's a former senior foreign service officer and half of one of the first tandem couples. The winner of the Department of State's Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as the American Foreign Service Association, ASVA's Harriman Award for her leadership role in creating the Department Family Liaison's Office, or FLO. She discusses her experience with the wife seminar, which led her to the conclusion that the neglect of clavier treatment of spouses was not a woman's issue. This is a management concern. That in turn led to meetings with other spouses and the attention of upper management. It eventually led to the creation of flow, which responds to the needs of foreign service families as they cope with the disruptions caused by a mobile and sometimes dangerous lifestyle. It provides assistance in the areas of family member employment, education of dependent children, and crisis support. In my high school in Central Florida in the early 60s, mm -hmm. 1961 to be exact, they taught us how to write research papers 
mm-hmm. by giving us a really dumb topic. Yeah. And the topic was what I want to be when I grow up. Sure. For reasons that I don't remember, mm-hmm. um, it occurred to me to write about being a Foreign Service Officer. Mm-hmm. So I sent off to the Department of State and got all sorts of information and gathered pamphlets mm-hmm. and read books and uh, found a person in Winter Haven who was a retired Foreign Service Officer and interviewed him. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fruits of my efforts and my research were discouraging as I recorded in the last yeah. paragraphs of the research paper, which went something along this line. And so if you're a young girl who hopes to have both a family and a career, mm. it would appear that the Foreign Service is With not for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it appears that the only way for a married woman to make it in Foreign Service is to marry a successful officer. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was in 1961. So I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, well, that's the way the world is. And I put that aside as a possible career possibility and went about my merry way. And I was absolutely elated because word had just come out in the newspaper that the State Department was changing uh-huh. uh, its directive on married women and married women would indeed be allowed to join the service. So we came to Washington in, I think it was September of 71 and uh, he started his A100 class mm-hmm. and I took the Foreign Service exam in October, the old exam, when mm-hmm. given on a predictable date, and uh, was elated some month or so later to be told that I had passed. Yeah. Uh, took the oral exam right. and was thrilled to death mm-hmm. uh, to be told that I was the second married woman who mm-hmm. had ever uh, been admitted into the service. So I was thrilled, yeah. but President Nixon at that time, uh, having little faith in the younger generation, mm. put a freeze on hiring for junior officers. So I accompanied Douglas to Mexico, it was his first assignment, and kept myself busy down there. Until 1975, I, we went back to Washington and I turned 31, found out I was pregnant and was unemployed again and in a new city again, although I knew Washington somewhat, we had stayed here briefly and before going to Mexico. But we had buy a house, and it was a huge personal moment of you know, transition and transformation, and that's really where the family liaison office was born, out of my angst and distress in, in that, because I realized that this was my life, and I didn't like it. And either he was going to have to give up his career so I could work and have a career, or I was going to have to give up having a career for his, or something was going to have to change. <laughs> and it was going to have to be the Foreign Service. And I, I was furious. I was, I, passion hardly describes it. But that was the germination, that six months coming back and that, transition well, and re-entry was where the family liaison office came from. It's where I got the idea. It's where I started reaching out and complaining and looking for people to help. What Was there, I mean, was there anything? There was nothing. No, because when, when, when women were taken out of the efficiency reports and when um, wives were made free persons, um, independent persons, they were turned into non-persons because you couldn't, you were still subject to everything you had been subject to before, but you had no role in it. You had no 
rights you had, and, and mostly the system had no responsibility to you. It didn't even recognize that you existed. You know, it had taken its marbles and gone home because they didn't like the rule. <laughs> you didn't like the rules, so fine. You know, you're out of the game. And, or at least that was the way I looked at it. And we formed what we called the Research Committee on Spouses. And we decided that the way to start changing things was to gather evidence and information. And it was in that process that we found out that there was no statutory requirement for Foreign Service for married women to resign from the Foreign mm -hmm. Service. It had just been practice. I remember the day somebody came in. <laughs> Did you know there's no rule? There's no rule. We don't have to do this. Uh, women don't have to do this because we were not. They, they were not all aspiring to the Foreign Service. And by '75, I think things had gotten had coalesced enough that. We had the Research Committee on Spouses, because what we wanted to do, I had said, look, if we can't prove that this is a management problem, we'll get nowhere, as long as it's feminism or ideology or, you know, a bunch of whining women. Um, nobody's going to pay any attention to us. We have to prove that this is a management issue. This is an institutional issue because of the changing role of women. The Foreign Service is not going to be able to do its business if they don't make allowances for working spouses. The key question was, will the working status of your wife influence your preferences for your next assignment? But we got a 38%, and I forget what the other four or five questions were, but we got a 38% response, which by any survey was stunning. We obviously hit a nerve. And the overwhelming response, 33%, I shouldn't say the overwhelming percent, 33% of the respondents not only said that the working status of their wife was a concern and would influence their choice, or their, this is a systemic issue and it's a coming issue because this is younger generation. Oh, we were and we were able to, to correlate those answers, that 33%, with the lower half of the service rather than the upper half. And we said, you know, this is a coming thing, and it's better to deal with it now. This is not sustainable. You can't have nothing. And it was about that time that the whole Carter campaign was pushing family and making a big deal out of family. And that's where the, the you know, we, we all agreed that it made sense to frame this in terms of family and Foreign Service family and family members. And then when I went to AFSW and, and put the proposition... AFSW is the... American Association of Foreign Service Women, it was at that time. It was the old line. I remember that meeting. Hope said, Stephanie, we've got to go do this. And she said, you need to meet Leslie Dorman, the new president. And you need to get these women behind you because if they're not, you don't have any, you're wasting your time. You don't have any chance of doing anything. So I said, okay, fine. So I went, it was at Georgetown. It was in a beautiful Georgetown home. The pearls and the silver service and the porcelain teacups. Uh, it was just classic. But Leslie was not classic. She was a Brit and she had been in the army during World War II, and just a pip, and she was taking over the presidency. And 
she'd sort of, she'd sized me up. Young woman has an issue. She makes sense. But she needs seasoning. She needs smoothing. She needs rounding. You know, she needs us to, to, she's got energy. We know how to get things done. And it turned out to be a felicitous um, uh, partnership. Uh, and we're still friends to this day. But um, I, I, I you joked when, when we left, Hope said, well, how do you think you did? And I said, well, I've never used the subjunctive so much in my life. And the whole presentation was very gentle. It was these concerns of these younger women, and there might be a problem, and we perhaps should consider the possibility of looking into it. But that was essentially where both the idea, the concept for, and the, the process for, for beginning to drive um, the, um, the, the, uh, the report that eventually um, came out and was the basis for enabling Cy Vance to have a recommendation to respond to. Um, it was called the Report on the Concerns of Foreign Service Spouses. Is foreign Service Wives? Sorry, it was Foreign Service Spouses and Families. Because mm -hmm. we wanted to get the family aspect in there. Um, but what it did, um, I, I wrote Chapter 2, which was essentially the philosophical and the, the, the intellectual frame for it of the changing generation, the changing role of women, the requirements for work, the expectations for work, the impact that this will have on the institution over time, um, the, the shift from the new Foreign Service wife, from the old Foreign Service wife, with all due respect, you know, because of the change in policy and laid out the, if there's anything worse than being um, a dependent, it's being a non-person. And that really spoke to people because they had experienced what that suddenly meant. The older women were bitter and, and hurt and distressed, and the younger women were just you know, uncomprehending of all of this. So we brought the two together. AFSW remains justly proud of its significant role in, because it was AFSW that gave its imprimatur to the to the survey. Cynthia and I did the survey and we got it out and we co you know, we got the stuff back and we collated it and did all the analysis and everything. But it was because it was done under under AFSW's and then AFSW got some of its members to head up different chapters and what became different chapters but different committees. And those would meet and they would have discussions and it, it was really a classic how to do it right. <laughs> Uh, for strategic change, and, and it was it was you know we we discovered it and we figured it out each step of the way. It wasn't like we had a playbook for it, but it was timely. It was inclusive, and it was very clear and purposeful. And in the final analysis, it also had the help of senior wives. Jean Newsom called me at a certain point, and in 1975, I took the exam again. I would, I'd gotten all involved in this admin uh, management stuff, so I came in as an admin officer.
The role of wives in the Foreign Service, whether they are following their husbands or a Foreign Service officer themselves, has been underappreciated. It is a pattern not unique to the State Department, but seen in almost every workplace that women have made contributions. Wives still offer support and are involved in their husbands' careers. ADST is, no longer is an independent, non-profit in organization. Women have if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to, to help ADST continue its work at www.adst.org. Thank you for listening.